Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the Underground Bunker. Once again this week, we received a timely and terrific narrative from Bruce Hines, a former top auditor in Scientology whose involvement in the church went back decades. This time, he was reacting to news we reported about the death of Jane Kember, the woman who at one time ran Scientology's worldwide spy network, the Guardian's Office. It turned out that Bruce had worked as a Guardian's Office volunteer on a local level, and he had some really interesting things to say about what it was like to engage in espionage for Scientology. We thought we'd talk some more with him about that. Bruce Hines, hey, it's great to have you back again. Thank you so much. This week you wrote us another killer narrative at the Substack. This time, Bruce Hines, former top auditor at the Church of Scientology, has described his years working for the Guardian's office. Uh, basically, I mean, you were spying for Scientology, right, Bruce? Exactly. That was the whole point. Wow. And again, uh, tell us a little bit of background about where you were and how, how you found out about this. All right. Um, so I was living in Denver at the time. And Denver had its own org uh, fairly recently at that time. And of course, every org had their own guardian's office or assistant guardian. And they would do the bidding of whatever the people at uh, Geo Int, which was where Jane Kember was, you know, they would, they had this whole network that went down to all the orgs and um, the, they have an organization board. The guardian's office does sort of like a regular Scientology org, except it had bureaus instead of divisions and it had branches instead of departments. And branch one was their spy wing, their intelligence. I think they, it was, they called it information. Branch one was information. Okay. And they would get volunteers. So I was living in Denver and I'd just gotten, um, started doing some training there because I'd been out of the country for about four years at that point. And I came back and I wanted to get some Scientology training. And then I got recruited to do this work for branch one. And again, just a little background um, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, uh, starting in the mid fifties. And I think it was because there were people that were sort of breaking away and doing their own thing. And it bothered him. He became really obsessed with security. He, he started passing all these policies about, uh, uh, security and punishing enemies and what to do about newspaper reporters and by the mid-60s, he had put out so many policies about this. He had really created this elaborate system for how Scientology should deal with outsiders and deal with uh, governments and deal with reporters and deal with uh, breakaway groups. And he then formalized it with an actual sort of apparatus headed by somebody called the Guardian. Um, and I, I think the original Guardian was his wife, Mary Sue Hubbard. And then in 1969, it was passed to this woman named Jane Kember. And so she became the guardian and the guardian's office was this massive. I mean, one of the things that's so characteristic of Scientology is how obsessed with bureaucracy and hierarchy it is. So you just described how this worldwide network reached down to even the local offices where there was a local guardian's office in Denver and it had a spy wing. And then, so how was this pitch to you? I mean, what were you doing there at the time? So I was <clears throat> basically just taking courses. Um, and so I, I had purchased a sort of package of courses where I could get trained as an auditor. At that point in time, I didn't have any auditor training. But I always wanted to do that when, as soon as I got into Scientology. And... Um, so I'd finished the first course, was just starting on the second one, and then got sort of notified by probably the, you know, the, there's a called the course supervisor probably came up and said, oh, someone wants to talk to you after course. And so I go, oh, okay. And so 
went into this room and there was this gentleman um, and I mentioned his name is Dave Barbosa and he was the head of B1. It was generally just called B1. Right. And, um, and so he started talking to me and uh, my fiance at the time, like, well, you know, we, you could, we could really do some, uh, something here that would really help Scientology expand and really help Scientology in accomplishing its goals of clearing the planet and all that sort of lingo they talk about. And, um, just started, started explaining it. And, you know, on the one hand, it says, like, Oh, this sounds kind of exciting. This is different. You know, I, <laughs> I could be like a sort of this spy type person and live this sort of secret life. And as I mentioned in the piece I wrote, part of the deal was that we had to formally like resign from Scientology. We were done. We weren't going to con continue it anymore. And we had to tell our family and friends that none of my family and friends at the time were in Scientology. So there wasn't a risk of having them having to disconnect from us. And, uh, and there we went. Well, that to, that to me was the most chilling thing in the piece you wrote was this idea. Uh, and we're talking like 1977, you said, I think. And at that time, in order to begin spying for Scientology, you first had to com convince all of your family and friends that you had left Scientology. I mean, weren't they, didn't they seem kind of thrilled that, that you were out of this thing now? I oh mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they, for sure. Um, particularly my, like my parents, they never like really um, tried to convince me not to do it, but I, it was clear that they didn't agree with it. But yeah, they were really happy. And um, the friends that I still had friends from all the way back from high school and even earlier and college, and they were all really happy too. But I didn't have any, because I was so busy doing all this stuff, I didn't have a chance to uh, really spend much time with them. But still, they were glad I was out. Wow. I mean, that's just, you know, because I, I, when I, when you sent that to me and then I was getting, you know, thinking, you know, publishing it, I was thinking this is going to hit people hard because there have always been questions over the years about people who come out and, you know, is it legitimate or not? And, and I, I don't, I'm sure there must be other examples, but this is the first one I remember where the person acknowledges, yeah, we, we pretended we had left Scientology because we were doing operations. I mean, that's just chilling. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, I, am, I have no doubt that that happens to this day. Um, I mean, used to see it on some of the old um, chat groups like uh, Operation Clambake and some of the other ones where you would get people on there pretending to be critics but they would always try to derail um, threads off onto some oh, other wow. topic. Right. And so, I mean, that's just one example where you get these, that's just on the internet, but I'm sure that there are people who are supposed critics or in the free zone and that they are still true blue Scientologists, but they're pretending not, not to be. Yikes. Well, I don't want, I don't want this to produce a witch hunt. I don't want people to be, you know, question about this but I, I it just it does seem uh scary that uh that that is one of their methods is to send people out to pretend that they've left when they really haven't wow yeah so let's go over some of the operations that you were asked to participate in sounds like some of them were were well thought out and some others weren't <laughs> well it was all pretty very amateurish the whole thing but yeah some were planned more than others, definitely. Uh, there was the one uh, where you pretended to be a newspaper reporter. That I, I got to tell you, that one rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it was it was uh, funny since I um, you published that, um, I found out and someone remembered the name of the fake newspaper that we worked for. Oh wow. And it was, uh, it's kind of funny because the name was Colorado in action. 
Uh-huh. And so if you take those letters, it's C. Oh gosh, that's funny. So tell me again about describe again that operation in particular. What what were you doing for Colorado in action? So um, there was a guy, and he worked in the Denver Revenue Office. Um, I didn't I never didn't know him. He was it was he wasn't a high level person, but somehow it was known by the local org here that he was critical of Scientology. And I know it had to do with them paying taxes, you know, since he worked in the tax office. And the best I can recall is that there was some newspaper article and he he was saying this in the newspaper. Um, and there were, there were two local newspapers at the time, the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News, would have been one of those. And um, so, you know, that's a big deal. You can't let anybody be saying that if you're, you know, in the eyes of Scientology. So they decided to f- target this guy. Right. And I know from like some of those policies you were talking about starting in the 50s, um, one of the methods that they do is they have these elab- an elaborate file system and it was all paper files back then, of course. And you would have somebody's name and everything about the, them that you could find out. And a time track, they were big on time tracks where you put everything um, sequ- sequentially in time. And if someone, another group or person gets mentioned in connection with this one person, then a file would be started on that. And it was this very complex um, file system. So. Anyway, that means you have to gather information about the person. Right. And you're hoping that you're going to find something that could be used against him, either to discredit him. Um, that's the dead agent um, uh, ploy that they use, where someone is, I, well, I don't know, dead agent. It's a whole thing in Scientology. Right. Right. If someone has been critical you get discreditable information or you, you get evidence that they have lied. And so that discredits what they're saying. And so no one should believe what they're saying about Scientology. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I go, um, I make an appointment to go see this guy because I'm writing an article for Colorado in Action. And I had a little ID card that we'd forged. And um, I have a little, one of those little cassette recorders you know, those portable ones, you just push a button and it records and I go in and and I just started asking him questions and recorded the whole thing and then tried to summarize it in some way afterwards. And, you know, I don't really, after that, I don't know if anything ever came of it, but I think Dave Barbosa, that would have been part of his statistics. Like he got a contact with an enemy and we got some information and there's a file on him. And so it probably looked good for him. I don't think as to my knowledge, no other action was ever taken against this man who worked in the tax office. Well, you know, that, that also rang a bell because, um, and I think Mike Rinder and I both talked about this. Uh, we've talked about the subject together that, um, over the years, we're always getting asked to be interviewed, right? And and you know, I always check out the person and their, you know, the, who they're with and stuff. Um, but you know, you're real busy, and so somebody wants to interview you, do an interview, and then nothing ever shows up. And th- that's happened a few times <clears throat> where I've wondered, I've wondered, did I just give an interview to Osa? You know, <laughs> um, Osa is the successor to the guardian's office that bruce was in but that definitely has happened over the years where i have given interviews i know i know mike has had the same thing where we've given interviews and then nothing ever appears and we wonder uh if if we didn't just give an interview to scientology which is fine with me i i tell reporters it's all the same stuff you know they don't you know it's not like they'd get anything from me that they that i'd given every other interview but but that that did ring a bell for me that that yeah, that little operation you did I think they're still doing today. Yeah, that that happened to me too once. Someone called me and on a set up an interview and 
<clears throat> I think it was going to be on a local TV station or something. Uh huh. There, my son was going to be involved, and I had to get his agreement to do it. And then just like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. um, you're probably well aware that one of the techniques is to the person that's being investigated. You're trying to get information on. They want you to know that they're being investigated, or that right. someone's trying to get information on you, to as an intimidation tactic. Yeah. Yeah, the noisy investigation. I mean, yeah. that's uh, that's one of Scientology's classic things. Is you know, it might seem amateurish the way they're very obviously following you or calling you or that kind of thing. But there's a purpose to that. It's it's not that they are trying to be sneaky about getting information from you. They want you to know you're being looked at because there's a psychological dread there. They, they want you to feel, Oh man, I'm being targeted. That stops a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the thing about these things, Bruce, is I know we're having some fun looking at some of the, your operations. Some of them seem like they were kind of amateurish, but the reason why Scientology does this stuff over and over again, and they've done it, they did it in the seventies with you and they've been doing it ever since is it works. People do get frightened off of, of, you know, talking about Scientology because of these operations, even the ones that seem kind of amateurish. I can tell you that just recently there were several, several media productions involving Scientology that were derailed because of Scientology's usual tricks. Now they didn't work against HBO or A&E, uh, you know, obviously with, with uh, going clearer than Leah's show, but the, but the same techniques did stop some other organizations I could name. So, they're still even if even if some of it seems like kind of Keystone Cops, they keep doing it because it's effective in some cases. Yeah, it is, and and you can be afraid, like oh my god, or it's just you don't want to go. Th it's just like a pain. It's like I don't right. want to have to deal with this. So let's you know why why bother sort of thing. Right, and that and that works with law enforcement people because I you know people will say. You know, I'll often say that, you know, law enforcement agencies, agencies don't do anything because they're afraid of Scientology. And people will come back to me and say, come on, are you really saying that police and prosecutors are afraid of Scientology? And I say, well, look, here's how it is, is that once a prosecutor decides to look into Scientology, they know that their family is going to be looked at. Their finances are going to be looked at. Their phone may be looked into. And these things are not going to like threaten their lives or anything, but it's enough to say, you know what? I think I'll choose somebody else to prosecute. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. enough. It's enough of a hassle. And and I can listen. Let me tell you, I'm saying this in a general way, but I know some specifics. All right, I know it's hard to believe, but Scientology in 2022 is still doing these things. I I hope at some point to be able to be more specific about it. But uh, it's just outrageous what they're still doing today to government officials who unfortunately can't say anything about it just yet. But I'm hoping they will soon. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, Bruce, that they do these kind of noisy investigations, sort of crazy investigations. But, you know, they do make people think twice. Yeah, I mean, it even worked on me recently. Um, Mueller, the DA in LA, yeah, he, he contacted me about being an expert witness in the Danny Masterson trial. Okay. Um, and I know also Claire was, and Claire was going to do it. I, I've told Mr. Mueller, like, well, number one, I'm not the best expert on this kind of thing. There's other people who are. And I also said to testify in open court against them is a whole different thing. Now, Claire's already been through a lawsuit and stuff, so I don't think it's, you know, she wouldn't have the quite the effect on her, but it did. It would have an effect on me. I said, hmm, if I do that, I know there's going to be a lot more happening, and I, I just don't know if I want to deal with it. Wow. Okay. See, I I had heard some things. I, I had heard that you were approached. Um, 
I think you would have been great in court. Uh, but as you saw, Judge Omedo, we're talking about the Danny Madison criminal trial that just occurred in October, November, and ended with a hung jury. And when the trial began, the prosecution, uh, besides the, the three main victims, there also was a fourth victim, uh, they wanted to bring in an expert to explain the Scientology because Danny Masterson is, grew up in Scientology. He's a Scientology celebrity. And the three women he's accused of raping were Scientologists at the time. They are not today. And a lot of their testimony has to do with what they, how they reacted to these attacks, how they dealt with the Church of Scientology, why they feared the Church of Scientology. And so the prosecution wanted to bring in an expert to help explain some of these policies that were affecting these women. But Judge Olmedo ruled, based on what she had seen at the preliminary hearing last year, that the women themselves were good at explaining it. In other words, they, they she didn't she couldn't have the court put Scientology itself on trial. She was going to allow the women to describe how Scientology affected them. And she decided that they did a good enough job of that, that a separate expert wasn't necessary. And so she did not allow Claire Headley to uh, testify. I had heard that you had also been approached. I didn't ask you about that because I, I didn't, I didn't know what had gone down, but, but you're saying that the prosecutor reached out to you and, and then you decided that that would just, that would just amp up too much their attention on you. Yeah, I did. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, and I did really think I was thinking of someone like Claire or Mark or um, someone who actually, you know, who worked more with the OSA side of things and the policy side of things. I was always considered a technical guy. Um, but I, you know, I certainly could have explained and I, I, in retrospect, I don't think the jury really understood at the end of the day, this, the role Scientology played in the whole thing. No, now, that know, was, I know they tried to explain it, but I think it would have been really good if an expert could have sat there and said, here's what they do. Yeah. It was uh, frustrating on that juror interview that uh, Chris Shelton and I got to do, but that, that he did say they they just pretty much disregarded the Scientology component. Yeah, I heard and, that. And I don't know how you understand that case without a lot of Scientology component because, you know, and I've said it in some of the other interviews, but, you know, just to give you an example, with Jane Doe 1, you know, Philip Cohen, the defense attorney, kept coming back again and again to this 2003 document she had written as if that is the gold standard for what really happened. And the fact that she says something different today is the problem. And I couldn't believe it because the 2003 document he's talking about is the one he wrote with the master at arms at AOLA. In other, <laughs> in other words, it's a Scientology document. How can you consider that credible at all? Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that really needed to be explained to the jury a little better. And, and it, I guess there was a considerable amount of Scientology. It just, I guess it needed to be presented in a way that was more obvious to the jury how important it was. And I'm not sure how you do that. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, an expert saying it, you know, when the victims say it or the alleged victims, they were victims, I think, but um, it's, I think it can come across like, oh, they're just, you know, they're kind of bitter or they, um, or using it as an excuse or something. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas the expert can come in more as an outsider and say, look, the, 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 the policies they're talking about apply to everybody. It's not just these three women, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's important that I believe that the jurors or whoever is listening understands the church's policies and the actions they take. And that's a big part of it. The part that's really hard to get across to people is the victim's mindset, how Scientology affects the way a person thinks. And I believe that it is part of the uh, thought control, brainwashing, whatever term you want to use, thought reform. and it's hard to get across like how the person would have been thinking at the time when they're a Scientologist and they're being told such and such by the chaplain or the master at arms or whomever. Um, it, 
to get just a person who doesn't know about how a person's thoughts or thinking can be affected utterly changed because they are involved in this um, cult or this belief system. So I, that would, I think, you know, I, would that be relevant in a trial? I don't know, but it seems like there should be at least some attempt made to show that they weren't in their right minds at the time. It wasn't just what the church was saying. Well, I can tell you one part where it really struck me that that was the case. I, I had seen these three women testify at the preliminary hearing the year before, but one thing that was different this time uh, was Jane Doe three. She was the one that was in a relationship with Danny and um, he kind of got her into Scientology. So they'd been together for six years. She'd been in Scientology for several years. She took it very seriously. And so they had this incident where it was, she was just shocked that he had abused her. She was, she was injured, you know, and she went to the church and said to the, um, uh, I think it was the master at arms. She went versus Miranda Scoggins. And she said, Danny, Danny Manson raped me. And she testified that Miranda, this ethics officer for the church of Scientology told her, no, we don't, you know, you can't rape someone in a relationship. And also that they don't use that word in Scientology. Show so she, you know, this ethics officer explained to her how to think about what had happened to her. And I we'd heard that before, but the next step is what really, really struck me with her testimony this time. She said, I believed her because she was my ethics officer. That's the element that I think was had been kind of missing was that she the reason why it was years later that she started to think wait a minute I was raped because because I I had heard that from people how can you how can so, somebody suddenly realize they were raped years later well it wasn't that she suddenly realized it it's just that for all these years she had done as she was told in Scientology and that was not to think of as a, as a rape and it wasn't until she was starting to get away from Scientology and she was with this new husband and he told her that's a rape that she began to shake off that Scientology thinking. That was a very important part of this trial, I felt, and maybe why she had the strong vote with the jury. But that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right, Bruce? Yeah, I agree. When you're a Scientologist, particularly if you're a public Scientologist and you're doing services at an org like Celebrity Center, the, the master at arms or the ethics officer, they are significant people. They have power. They can like, you know, assign you ethics conditions and stuff. Plus, I believe that most Scientologists, when they're active in it, they're very suggestible and they want to conform their thinking to what they think is um, accepted by the church. And right. so they they readily accept that sort of thing. So they say, no, that wasn't rape. And so she goes, okay, so yeah, it wasn't rape. And yeah. it took someone, her husband later who had been in Scientology said, come on, that was rape. What are you talking about? Um, I, you know, I can speak for myself. I got out of Scientology in 2003. It took a couple years and for me to shake um, many of these this, these ideas and ways of thinking, it isn't an instant yeah. thing. And I'm sure no, most I... people would listen to the the victim, the witness say, oh, well, they told me it wasn't rape, so I believed it. They would go, oh, come on, you're not that stupid. Or, you know, I don't know what they would think, but it's, it's hard to grasp that um, there could be such an effect on the way a person thinks. Right. No, I, I agree with you. And I think that may be one of the things that was missing is state of mind and how Scientology is such a control over the way people think. And I, I don't know. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I assume the DA is thinking of ways to, to present this in a different style. Uh, but it was frustrating to hear from that juror that they just didn't consider it. They just didn't pay attention to the Scientology stuff at all. That was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a big reason 
Um, and then, you know, they focused on discrepancies in the reports that, or the interviews that the victims gave at different points in time. And, you know, that totally explains why they would change why, what a person says about, you know, event X happens and then you talk about it and your state of mind is going to have a great effect on your description of event X. And the jury just, you know, that wasn't present at all for them. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens in round two. So tell me about another one of your exploits besides doing the interview. What was another one that you felt, uh, what's, what's the most cloak and dagger thing you did as a guardian's op, uh, office operative? Well, the one that um, sort of was the hardest was when we uh, were supposed to go and talk to the head of the Colorado Psychiatric Society. <laughs> and um, so everyone knows how much Ellen Hubbard hated psychiatry. And to this day, you know, they're considered not only the reason for all the evils on planet earth, but for in the entire universe. And they were the implanters way back on the time track, these psychiatry people. Anyway, so the, one of the big foes of Scientology in, in the seventies and probably since was the American psychiatric association, the APA, mm-hmm. and they had state level societies. So there was the Colorado Psychiatric Society, and there was a psychiatrist, a guy who had a practice here in Denver, who was the head of that. And so found out where he lived. And the idea was that I and my fiance at the time would go and talk to him and, and tell him like, you know, gosh, we really wanted to help out, you know, <laughs> psychiatrists have a big job and, um, we could, you know, we could love to volunteer in some way. We think we could just, it would really be great, you know, if we could do that. And, um, but, you know, we had to go and drive to the guy's house and then just walk up and ring the bell. He's not expecting us at all. Didn't know what to expect. And I don't know, just the idea of lying so blatantly. (laughs) I'm not that good at it really. Um, it helped when I had a little ID card and a recorder and a thing that said I worked for a newspaper. Right. But, um, and this Dave Barbosa guy, he, he said that we should stage this scene in his living room. Oh yeah. That was, that sounded crazy. <laughs> well, did he see, have, did he have you like play acted as practice first or anything like that? No, but he probably should have. Cause I just couldn't do it. You know, if I were a really good spy, I could have really played the role. But you know, and what thought, was what did, what did he want you to? What was the scene he wanted you to create? Well, I think you know he figured that the guy would just say, "Oh no, sorry," you know. So he wanted me to, you know, like anticipating that this psychiatrist would say, "No thanks, we don't need any uh, volunteers," and then I would turn to my fiance at the time and go, "You see." I told you this was a stupid idea. I mean, come on, this is stupid. And she would go, well, gee, I just wanted to help it. And she would be all sad and I would be mad. And that would, I think, getting emotion thrown into the scene, it might have had an effect on the psychiatrist. That was the idea. And like he would say, oh, well, okay, gosh, she's so sad about it. Okay, well, yeah, you can do something. You know, but anyway, that was the idea. I see. Wow. And then you said that uh, he had figured you kind of figured you guys out anyway. Yeah, that, and I'm tr- I, I'm foggy on those details, but it was a few weeks later, and I called him on the phone, and I can't remember under what pretense or who I said I was. Maybe at that point I was saying that I was part of this Colorado in Action newspaper, mm. and I wanted to talk to him or something. Right, and. Just when I'm talking to him, just out of the blue, he said, he said, these two people came to my house and I think they were from Scientology. Oh, wow. So it was, but 
I think the geo would have been happy about that because he would have said, oh, Scientology's after me. Yeah. Interesting. But there, I guess there was enough, um, you know, even the a local psychiatrist knew about Scientology and that they would go to great lengths to try to... Uh, scuttle Scientology, uh, psycho psychiatry's plans. Right. Well, I, I was just talking to somebody else about this who, who's been looking into the, that side of it. And I, they asked me, you know, all these years Scientology has been opposing psychiatry and attacking them. Is it having an effect? And my sense is that, you know, look, first of all, there are literally hundreds of thousands of psychiatrists uh, around the world, they they dwarf Scientology, <laughs> yeah. and and I don't think they I don't think they give it much thought, is my sense. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so either. But of course, to Scientology, it's huge. I mean, it's a big part of what they try to do. Yeah, I don't know what they've done lately. Um, well, they still always show up at those APA conventions, and oh know, yeah, they, that's right, that's right. CCHR is always, you know doing its thing they have this thing called psychsearch.net where they are you know looking for i mean when you have hundreds of thousands of people in a profession like psychiatry there's gonna be a few who get in trouble you know and and, and run afoul of the law and so and so what scientology does is really promote those you know publicize those uh and that's what psych search does. They, they literally build a dossier on every single psychiatrist in the united states they they say that yeah i believe does. it incredible it, yeah. uh okay how about an, any other uh you had a couple other fun ones in there it sounded like how long did this last that you were spying for scientology well the whole thing was over about a year and a half oh wow that's that's a pretty good amount of time yeah and so you know i was we were both working part of the time um and then at one point my fiance at the time she even quit this pretty good job she had working for Anaconda Copper that had an office in Denver and um, went, you know, started doing this full time, this uh, wow. geo stuff. Um, <clears throat> and, and then, as I mentioned, after like about a year into it or so, I decided I was going to go back to school and I did that. Okay. Um, but there were, um, I mean, a couple of the ones that stand out in my mind, one was, um, trying to follow this ARM guy in the car after I went and listened to him. So, Oh, okay. Right. He was, he was a, a minister or pastor of some church, some pretty well-known church, I guess. And he was uh, a spokesperson for the anti-religion movement and he would travel around the country and, and he would go to, I think usually churches and he would talk about these, new religious groups or these cults that were gaining popularity and how um, talk about how bad they were and how they were uh, a threat to the, their church, their established religion. And so on that one, I, I and this other guy, we drove to this church and where he was going to be giving this, it was like a church service. And then the sermon was this anti-cult rant sort of. Um, and had to go in and sit down and, you know, I'm acting like I'm there for the service. And the other guy waited out in the car. And I, I mentioned this and I, I even found it interesting at the time, even though I was really sold on Scientology, I was true blue member then and listening to what this man was saying about these cults. Um, it had an effect on me, you know, it was like, Oh God. Interesting. And, but I, you're trained to sort of put that out of the, out of your mind and, you know, Oh, that's just N theta. And that's what N theta does. They call it N theta because it interpolates theta. Oh, and okay. Theta is truth and good. And then this N theta comes in and it messes everything up. So if you have some doubts or some weird ideas that like, what's to be expected sort of thing. So you just kind of dismiss it all. Um, so then we were supposed to follow him after he, he gave this oh, uh, wow. 
sermon. And I had my little green Volkswagen and they came out or I, I went out, got in the car and then waited for this man who had this minister guy to come out and he got in a car and they went to a restaurant. So they had this sort of event or this special church service. And then he, and I believe some of the organizers, you know, maybe the local ministers of that church or whatever, they all um, went and had a meal. So we had to wait outside. We talked about maybe we should go in and, and order some things so we wouldn't be so obvious or something. But then we thought, no, it might be hard to get out quickly. So we just waited in the car, I and this other B1 worker. And finally the meal was over, they came out and the minister got into the car that he had um, driven there, driven to the restaurant. And there were a couple of guys with him and they drove off and the other people got in another car and drove off another way. And so here we're following him and they wanted us to know, find out what hotel he was staying in. Okay. Now, I don't know why, maybe so you could probably continue some sort of surveillance on his on comings and goings and you might see who he met with or I don't know what you would find out, but um, anyway, you're supposed to follow him and, and follow him to his hotel. Now, this minister, he obviously had experience with people tailing him. So, you know, I know probably in many cities where he traveled, there were B1 workers similar to me trying to follow oh, him. Right. And I don't know what other of those new religious groups, cults, what sort of similar operations they may have had. It wouldn't surprise me if the Moonies had something like that and, or the Hare Krishnas. But um, anyway, so we're trying to follow him. And he knew how to lose a tail. It was um, quite, uh, caught me totally by surprise. So as this was in an area of Denver that was close to Interstate 70 that runs east and west through Denver. And he so he gets on to interstate 70 and we're following behind trying not to be too close or anything and so we get on i-72 it was late at night so it was pretty empty traffic wise and he's driving along right lane we're back i don't know several hundred yards you know so we keep an eye on on his car right and we're approaching an interchange with another uh, freeway. And so he gets, he's driving along and just before you would either take the ramp to get onto the other freeway, or you could go straight and stay on Interstate 70. And just before he got to that ramp, the car pulled over off the, out, you know, onto the shoulder of the, of the interstate and just right. stop. Oh, wow. And so we're driving along and, you know, one thing I could have done, I suppose, would have been just be to pull over right behind him. But how obvious would that be? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it, it was really clever. So I'm going, okay, I can either get on, take the ramp to the other uh, freeway, or I can keep going straight on Interstate 70. There would have been hotels in either direction. Okay. And, um, and so I, I can't remember which one I picked. I think I, I, um, because interstate 70 goes closer to the airport in, in Denver. Um, I stayed on that. And as soon as we were past that ramp that we can look in the rearview mirror and see his car start up and go on the other, take the other way. Yeah, and so wow. there was just no way like we would have to go down and turn around or something and go back. So he effectively lost us. Wow. Okay. Wow. Pretty smart. <laughs> yeah. But it, I thought it was interesting how he, he knew about this sort of thing. 
Now, over these months when you were interviewing the guy and trying to get in with the psychiatric group and following this lecturer, what sort of feedback were you getting from your handler? What, what, again, what was his name again? Bar- his name is Dave Barbosa. Barbosa. What kind of feedback were you getting from him about the work you were doing? Um, it was generally pretty positive. And even if I didn't see that it was so good, it would be like, okay, yeah, good. So this is, the, okay, we, we did that. That's good. We got that. Um, he was the kind of guy where he wouldn't give you too much praise, but I definitely had the feeling like, oh, so we're doing a good job here. Um, there was the one time, though, where he criticized me because I didn't steal the newspapers out of the library. <laughs> yeah. But um, other than that, that was really the only negative thing I remember. Well, that was a thing with them. I mean, I remember talking to Paulette, and when Paulette Cooper was starting, just starting to look into Scientology, and she was just, you know, as a reporter, she went to the library to look up, you know, the reporting that had been done before and use the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, as we all did in those days, and try to find this article or that article and she'd pull out a copy of a magazine from two years ago and she'd go to the page number that she'd looked up and the article would literally be missing from the publication. And (laughs) it turns out there were these, uh, and I think it was um, Patty Moyer that was talking about this, that there were these overt and covert groups and that when you were part of the overt group, you would do things like that. Just go to the library and cut out articles uh, that were about, because this was pre-internet. I mean, you could go to a library, literally cut out the articles that were about Scientology, and that was it. People couldn't couldn't get them because they couldn't just bring them up on the internet, you know? Um, so so that I, I know there were some people that were kind of reacting like, why would Bruce be criticized for stealing some newspapers? That doesn't seem like much. Well, when that's your only copy of those articles in that town, stealing those newspapers is kind of a significant act. Yeah, that was people's only source of information. Yeah, I think people don't re- you know, remember what it was like before the internet and having to yeah. go to a library and find things. And if it wasn't there, it wasn't there. You were out of luck, you yeah. know? Um, uh, that, now, you know, that makes sense. That would have been a whole standard operation they did wherever they could get go to the library and get any negative articles. That's right. And, and I think they did that a lot around the country. Is, and then they, they called that overt, overt data collection and go and take the stuff out of the library and look things up in the library. Uh, and then, of course, now in this time, the Guardian's office was in a crisis because... Um, you know, Jane Kember was running things from England. And like you said, it, it reached down to e- even the local level, like Denver, we're all working for her. Um, but then uh, from 70, 73 is when Hubbard dreams this thing up, but then between didn't really get going until mid 74. And then through 76, 77, they had this elaborate program where they weren't just trying to take articles out of magazines and in libraries. They wanted to get into government agencies like the IRS and take their files to see what they had on Hubbard. Uh, and, and what I uh, just going when I, you know, Jane Kemper died recently. She was this top super spy over all the Scientology world. And uh, going back through some of the, to, to prepare it a little bit about her, I went back and reread some stuff I haven't seen in a long time. And it made me realize one of the things they would do is, you know, the, the Freedom of Information Act was pretty new. I think it went into effect in 67. And so in the, by the mid-70s, Scientology was all over it. They were always requesting things from the government. And what they would do is they would, they would make a request, say, to the IRS for all tax documents regarding L. Ron Hubbard. So the IRS was then re- required by law to gather all that material in one place and then try to figure out, okay, how many of these documents do we actually have to turn over to Scientology and how many can we hold back? Well, of course, what Scientology really wanted to know were the documents that were being held back. So they would make the request, 
the documents would all be gathered and they'd had they they'd gotten employees working there so they knew when it was done and then when they knew all those documents were in one place then they would have the break in and they would send somebody in grab all those documents make copies of them whether they were entitled to them or not and that that's essentially what the snow white program was was trying to smuggle out those documents that they weren't entitled to but now you're saying you not only were not aware of that Snow White program, but you didn't even hear about the raid in July 1977. No, I did not. You know, so so odd. Um, there, you know, I can imagine there might have been an article in the local newspaper or something, but I didn't read the newspaper back then. I didn't really have time to read the newspaper back then. So I, um, and they certainly weren't talking about it within our little group of B1 workers. Interesting. So I just, I just didn't know. I didn't know until later. I mean, years later. Wow. So then how did, so, so how did it end for you? How did the spying period end? And, and then how did you, I mean, did you have to go back to family and friends and say, Oh, guess what? I'm back in Scientology now. (laughs) Um, so Dave Barbosa just decided that, um, I was bad news or something. And (laughs) so it was just like, okay, you're not a a B1 worker anymore. And my uh, fiance at the time, we had, we had, in the meantime, we had gotten married actually. And she was um, somehow he had manipulated her to be on his side against me. Oh. And so what happened was, or one of the things that happened is that she just said, okay, so uh, we're going to get divorced. Now in, in red, in, you know, that was a good thing. That marriage should never have happened. And it was very short lived. Yeah. Um, but it was traumatic for me at the time. And yeah. as, you know, as I mentioned in there, there were probably some reasons it would have led to him getting rid of me and one being that I went back to college and that wasn't, you know, that showed I just wasn't really dedicated enough. And yeah. And funnily enough, um, where he, he said, and I heard this from, um, my wife at the time that, you know, I was just asking too many questions. He thought like, it was very suspicious. So I'm asking all these questions. Why would I be doing that? And people who know me know that, I ask a lot of questions because I'm just a curious guy. Okay. Um, but anyway, it was it was deemed that uh, I I was shouldn't be there anymore. So that was the point where I didn't just now immediately go to my family and say, "Oh, well, I, I changed my mind. I'm going to do Scientology some more." One of the things was okay. that. I had signed this waiver saying that I would be kicked out, declared suppressive, expelled from the church forever. If I ever said anything about anything that I, any work I'd done for B1, any of those things. And I took that very serious at the time. Sure. So my decision was, I just, I'm getting out of Denver. This is too weird. And I, I wanted to be away. And so that was when I moved to LA and moved in with my sister. And I wrote about that in, um, when I wrote a, this piece about my sister who died from cancer. Oh, right. And, yeah. And so I, that was when I moved out. Yeah, that was, that was quite a thing, but that's why I ended up in LA. And okay. So then I just sort of started doing Scientology, um, again there. But at first, I wouldn't didn't say anything that I'd been involved in this B one work in um, in Denver, and f- my sister knew there was something odd. So when I was in L A, she would talk to me, and so finally, I, I said, "Well, you know, I, w- I was doing this work for the GO, and there was this guy named Dave Barbosa, and da 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 da." Because my sister was also curious, like, why was I getting a divorce all of a sudden? And Mm. so anyway, my sister then wrote reports, like when you're a Scientologist and you find out there's something that doesn't seem right, 
there's this things that shouldn't be report. That's one of the reports you can write. And so I don't know exactly what she wrote or to whom she sent it, but um, it wasn't long after that that Dave Barbosa got in trouble. And he, he got fairly soon after that, he was himself declared a suppressive person. I don't know oh, if my wow. sister's reports had anything to do with that. But anyway, so that's then I'm in LA and then um, the whole thing happened where my sister gave me a, this Dianetic session um, to try to help me with the divorce. Um, the divorce is a loss and they have this kind of auditing where you can address a loss and supposed to help the person get over it. Like if a loved one dies or something, you would get a similar kind of auditing. Okay. But uh, anyway, so then I just continued with Scientology in LA and then my parents found out and I don't know what they would have thought. They probably just thought it was all crazy anyway. <laughs> wow. And that, what year would you say that that was? That was September, 1978 in, into October. Okay. I moved to okay. the end of September. God, that's amazing that you weren't hearing about stuff because the raid was July 77 and then they were litigating it through the rest of that year. And then in April 78 is when the information from the raid finally started coming out in the press. And there were a lot of stories in the spring of 78 about these horrendous things this Church of Scientology was doing revealed in FBI files. Um, and that <clears throat> through, you know, then the, the trial, I think the, there were a couple different trials. I think those were in 79. So, so when you were there in se September 78, this was all kind of swirling around, but again, you, you were unaware of it. And even though you were in LA where it was happening. Yeah, it really odd. I didn't know anything about it. Even the, um, when did you say the, the rains happened? Like you say April? The, the raid the raid happens July 8th 1977 simultaneously in Los Angeles in Washington DC um yeah. See, and they seize they I'm sorry I'm just wondering if it was when that happened that the geo decided that they needed more operatives because they needed to get more active and so that was why we got one of the reasons we got approached to get recruited to do I mean this. it could have been I don't know it's it's uh it would have fit t time wise I think right well um I don't know if maybe the geo felt it needed to beef itself up or not but uh yeah 11 people eventually were convicted of conspiracy and were sentenced to prison I don't think they served a lot of time but you know, that was front page news for a while there in 79 and 80. And of course, one of the people who went to prison was Mary Sue Hubbard, Ellen Hubbard's wife. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you've written about how you ended up auditing her several years later at her sort of little house prison. Right. And then Jane Kember went, did some prison time in the U S as far as you know, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't, when I was going back and doing, um, that's a question for Chris Owen, I think, or John Atak. When I went back and looked over things for the obit I wrote, um, I could find that. See, the special thing with her, so nine Scientology, after the raid, the raid happened because one agent, uh, it's actually a great story. I told in my book about Paulette Cooper, uh, one of the first women agents in FBI history was the person who was called when these two suspicious guys were seen messing around with a law library in Washington, D.C. one night. And these agents showed up and asked these two guys for their ID. And it was this woman agent who realized that the guy that they had interviewed had given them a fake IRS ID. And, that's, and then so she went to the IRS. Uh, he said his name... Um, he, I think he said his real name, Michael Meisner, but the ID he'd given her was fake. And so he went to, she went to the IRS to look into this and to show them the ID. And she just happened to see him in the hall. It was complete luck. She grabbed him, arrested him, 
and uh, and they just did a booking. After the booking, he ran. He ran to California, and Mary Sue Hubbard put him under guard and said, look, we'll get you out of this. Don't worry. We'll make up some stories. And so they spent months like trying to come up with some elaborate story for him for why he was at that library that night and why he had a fake ID. And the longer they were waiting, the more elaborate the story was getting. And he was like, I'm never going to remember this story. This is ridiculous. And he was getting more and more frustrated. And so he finally ditched his captors one night, ran to a bowling alley and called the FBI. And they came and picked him up three weeks later the FBI raided the Church of Scientology because he had gone to them and spilled his guts. And it was really because Mary Sue and the other GO people were treating him so badly. Um, that's Michael Meisner's story. It's great, great stuff. And again, it might never have happened except for this female agent was smart enough to notice that something was up and kept after it. Even I, I interviewed her. I'm the only reporter who's ever interviewed her. And she was saying that the men she worked for kept telling her to give it up, that it wasn't, it wasn't an important case. And she's like, no, there's something going on here. And she went, uh, at one point she went to this, um, uh, FBI, or, I mean, a U.S. Uh, attorney named Nathan Dodell, I think was his name, was in that same building on the same floor. And she went to him and said, look, um, I think these guys might've been getting into your office or something. Do you know why they would have done that? And he looked at her and said, I can only imagine it's the Church of Scientology. And she said, why? And she didn't She didn't even know. And it was this woman who was able to finally piece together that this break, these break-ins involved the Church of Scientology. Because Nathan Dodell, no, he was, a, he was a U.S. attorney that they'd targeted for years. He knew who was breaking into his office. Anyway, it's all, it's all in my book. If you haven't read it, people, check it out. It's, it's great that this, this, this woman didn't, you know, she needs to get more credit. So anyway, um, yeah, all that was going on, Bruce. But it's a it, it, it's amazing that you didn't get to hear any of it. Yeah, did she? Uh, she could look at his ID and tell it was fake. No, I think that um, they took it back and um, realized that it was fake. Was how oh, it, it went. Yeah, yeah. and and Gosh. then the problem That's... was it didn't have his it didn't have his proper address, and so she literally like went to the area that he said he was from and walked around until she found somebody that, uh, that I'm going to have to review that chapter again. It's been so many years since I wrote it, but she's, uh, she did some amazing work there. And, um, boy, I'll say that's uh, incredible. No, I mean, see, that was the thing was Mary Sue. What was kind of fun about it was when she had Michael Meisner on ice, she kept telling everybody, look, they're not going to make the connection between you know Gerald Wolf and Michael Meisner and Scientology, there's no connection. They're you know they're just a couple of guys that are doing some suspicious stuff. They're not going to actually you know, and and she didn't count on this. It's you know that's one of the things that's really interesting about um, the history of this. Uh, all this history I got into is that it's the women that are the most interesting. Jane Kember, Mary Sue Hubbard. Paulette Cooper, this this FBI woman's name was Christine Hansen, and she questioned Michael Meisner, and she's the one that really put things together. And and she, I interviewed her. I'm the only reporter that's ever interviewed her. After all these years, she said nobody had ever called her up, and and she said that, you know, her bosses were telling her give it up. This is not important. But she kept at it, and she's the one. That made the connection between these sketchy guys at a law library and the Church of Scientology. And maybe these larger arrests, maybe, you know, the ultimately the raid would never have happened without Christine Hansen sticking to her guns and checking things out. So um, I know that's not part of your story, Bruce, but I'm, I, you, you mentioned uh, – you know, we were talking about Geo and all the things they went through. And I just sort—I just felt like mentioning it again. So, well, I mean, it's very related because it's all part of this these Geo operations. You know, it was an amazing group. They were just uh, so blatant in the things they did. That was the other thing that I looked up when I was looking at. Uh, you know, when I got the news that Jane Kember had died, 
looking at some of these sentencing memos and all the evidence they had where she's like celebrate, you know, cause you know, it's Scientology Bruce, right? So when they burglarize a place, they got to hand out commendations. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she's, she's handing out very well done after they break into places and, you know, she tried to have some sort of defense where she's always oh, just following orders. Like, no, you weren't. You were telling these guys to break into places. You were giving them certificates. <laughs> just so amazing. Scientology never changes. <laughs> yeah. And once you know how st- really stupid they are. Well, I mean, I don't know about stupid. I mean, I know they're they're determined. I think that's the number one thing is they always think that they're doing the right thing. They never give up. Uh, They follow the same playbook. And maybe they've changed things slightly from 1977 when you were doing it. But I really don't doubt that they're still recruiting people just like you, Bruce, asking them to put on fake sort of, you know, stories about who they are and what they're doing and going out and gathering information today. Don't you think it's still going on? Oh, yeah, for sure. And people have pointed out that these days they get attorneys to hire PIs to do a lot of this work. But I still think there are uh, volunteers within the church who are doing things like this. There must be. And if you have volunteered recently for the Office of Special Affairs to dig up information, even if it seems like it's very sort of um, low level or not important, we would like to hear from you. Please contact us because as you can see with Bruce, it's just fascinating stuff. <laughs> it's, it's really good. Yeah, I hope they do. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. Yeah, it would be great. Thank you so much for uh, giving us such a great piece right at the end of the year. We got uh, our New Year's celebrations coming up. And I look forward to the stuff uh, you have for us in 2023. Well, great. My pleasure. I'm so I'm glad I can participate here. All right. Thank you very much, Bruce. Now I will go down in Bunker Town again, again, again to witness history. Ride the storm. Wait to see how reckoning.